Sean, I know a lot of terrible events have happened in the news lately. Of course. The news is just, it's dreck. It's, it's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. But none have affected me more than seeing Guardians of the Galaxy 3 put on hold. Oh, no. It's just like, of, of everything else we're dealing with currently, we also have to deal with this. I, I, I don't know. I mean, has nobody thought of the Guardians fans? Has nobody thought of the Tim Gunn fa- Tim Gunn. James Gunn fans. <laughs> oh, can we, can we have a hired James Gunn? Or Tim Gunn? Can we hire Tim Gunn instead? I've, are you kidding me? That, no, let's make it work. All right. <laughs> Guardians, this is a make it work moment. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah, we found that, the solution. That collector, it's, it's too overdone. I, <laughs> I think you need to pare back a little bit. The fur, it's a bit much. Teenage Groot is really growing into the role. <laughs> Who would get the Tim Gun save, Greg? Who? I, I don't know. I've never watched Project Runway, so I don't what? know. What? Yeah. How dare you? You started this premise, and you don't even know? You can't, you can't I, even speak I've to it. I've based this entirely on comedian impressions and maybe an appearance or two on Conan. I don't know. <laughs> tisk, tisk, Rick. Tisk, tisk. Okay. <sighs> it's, just, it's just a fun impression to do, John. Everybody loves it. I guess this is true. He's also just a fun person to have on all the TV shows. Absolutely. In the news. Is there a, n- name a single show that hasn't had a Tim Gunn cameo at one point. Because uh, the man is working. I was, the man is working. The, the first idea I went to was a show that pretty directly had a Tim Gunn cameo in it, and that was BoJack Horseman. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I believe he threatens to throw a uh, a sewing machine at Todd, who stumbles <laughs> his way onto a, a runway. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Well, I guess they also have a lot in common because uh, Project Romo used to be uh, produced by the Weinstein Company. Womp, 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 womp. Oh, yeah, get my collar at that one. <laughs> Even more I was so. Wondering, oh, go ahead. I, I was wondering why there was such like a gap between seasons, and I was like, oh, because they have to scrub his name off everything immediately. <laughs> Disinfect it with sage. Yeah. I felt the same thing. I rewatched Coco recently on Netflix, and oh yeah, after a very emotional, uplifting ending. Um, spoiler alert: <laughs> Coco has a happy ending. <laughs> the fourth name on the title: Executive Producer John Lasseter. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with Incredibles too. So, oh, his, his name is still on there. Come on. Yeah, come his on. name was still on there. You didn't know that? Pixar, come on, Pixar, get your get your stuff together. Well, these these projects are in development for years and years and years. They can't help it. Any event, John. Speaking of Pixar. <laughs> Yes. Pixar Fest, I believe, is still going on for one more week at the beloved Disneyland Resort. Another A-plus segue from Greg mm-hmm. Manto. <laughs> so if I Greg, th- why do you want to talk about Disneyland? Well, Please, tell me. It, well, it's an excuse. If I sound hoarse or tired today, it's because I spent a full day, which is what you should do if you want to maximize your time there. <laughs> and money. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well... <laughs> What what's helpful is to make sure you have the right company there, and thankfully we did. We had a, a great group of friends, um, two of whom are season pass holders, and they knew exactly what to do and where to go. So okay, that was absolutely perfect. It's a plus from there. Always make sure you have your squad, and I'm going to use that completely un- unironically. Uh, hashtag squad, Greg, I believe is the proper nomenclature. Yes, make sure you have your squad um, ready to go. Otherwise, Disneyland is a is a good ex- family experience, I'd say. Um, Maybe not for me because I like thrill rides and nah. hot take. Yeah, <laughs> Disneyland is good for families. <laughs> well, if it if it were not too families with tight wallets, am I right, <laughs> fellas? Am I right? Am I right? I Ladies, will say this. I will say this. As a veteran of Fenway Park, they could have gouged more. So I'll <laughs> okay. give them credit for that. Um, a cheeseburger. Well, it's because it's because you spent the day buying up Disney fun bucks. That's your issue. You, <laughs> okay. you, you're a savvy consumer. Well, of so course I did. Yeah, I'll take 1,000 itchy and scratchy dollars, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Remember, we parked in the itchy lot. Uh, John, I tried that joke. Nobody laughed. <laughs> A, because nobody watches The Simpsons and has infected our brains, has infected their brains like it has yours and mine. Also, yeah, it's, not a, it's not a parking lot. It's a parking structure. <sighs> so. No one gets us. No one gets us. <laughs> Nor, nor did anybody laugh when I did a whole monorail. I sang the entire monorail song when I saw it just outside the park. <laughs> um, they've, they, they wanted to have guards on me. I was disturbing the peace, apparently. Ugh. Yeah. Well, again, now you never have to hang out with these people ever again. You've yeah. gotten your Disney pass. <laughs> you've gotten your Disney day, so call it a day. You're done. No, I, no never. <laughs> All right. Because, again, I will give Disney credit. They could have gouged more. Um, mm-hmm. The cheeseburger was still reasonable um i got a 20 liter fountain drink of coke or 20 liter might as well <laughs> 20 ounce fountain drink of coke for less than what we sold a 20 ounce bottle in the stands at fenway park so all right fair yeah, enough so I, I'll uh, again them. greg's only two references fenway park and disneyland that's yeah. it <laughs> exactly because i'm gonna i'm an elitist i 
if if you don't have the opportunity or pluck to actually, or I'll just say luck to get to these places, uh, pluck works. Pluck works. Pluck yeah. works. I mm-hmm. like pluck. Just love that those are the only two recreational things you've ever done in your entire life. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and I will give Daisy credit for this. It's it's got some really impressive animatronic and attraction work. Um, the big there was a big finale show called Phantasmagorium or something. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, isn't that a horror movie? I, I yeah, it's called like Phantasm, but it, I, I just kept thinking it was like Phantasmagorium, which I think is an HP Lovecraft uh, reference. Anyway, um, yes, the direction in which the stage show takes uh, is pretty apt for that. But okay, yeah. <laughs> But it's a, it's got a live Mickey on a stage on this uh, cove, and uh, they project. It looks like a hologram, but they show up. Uh, they blow a up live a, Mickey. They enslaved a poor Mickey, yes. and they force him out into shows. That's or terrible. Say, yeah, or a live person in a Mickey costume. <laughs> Where's the black fish for this move? For this park, I should call it Black Mouse. <laughs> he is a black mouse. Because yeah, well yeah, he is indeed black, John. Mm-hmm. And he was showing the the oppressiveness of the the white Ur- <laughs> the white queens Ursula and Maleficent white devil <laughs> Maleficent yeah actually it's weird for some reason they've been trying to turn Ursula into whenever they do like a live action adaptation nowadays of mm. a Disney property they always cast Ursula as black and really? I'm not sure why yes they did it on Once Upon a Time and then also recently my fiance was watching The Descendants two. And <laughs> Ursula was black in that one, apparently. So okay, uh, we'll have a conversation about that later, Disney. But <laughs> Greg, they need diversity, okay? Yeah, but it was a hugely impressive show. They had boats passing back and back and forth, including like this ninety-foot-tall pirate ship in which uh, Jack Sparrow and a bunch of other people did stunts and dancing and stuff like that. Oh was... no, problematic. Why? Because it's Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow. No, we can completely. It's the character, John, the beloved character. Oh, okay, the beloved. <laughs> beloved pirate slash rapist yeah. <laughs> got it he wasn't a ra- he was a, sp- a spousal abuser john come on get no. your facts straight i'm just saying he's a pirate jack sparrow's probably raped someone at one time or at least done something non-consensual let's he's a he's a gentleman <laughs> in the first movie he holds a gun to keira knightley come on that's um, that's unfair but he's a nice he's a nice guy along the way he's cornered okay. right just don't corner him he's like a he's right, like an animal all right Fair enough. <laughs> That's what happens to these mega movie stars. They become feral creatures and need to corral them. No, of course. They have handlers, like mm-hmm. they're wild bears. Yeah. John, we mentioned Urs- Ursula earlier. There's mm-hmm. a very, there's a very neat, well, not a very complicated ride, but the, um, basically you get in a little clamshell and watch these little dioramas of the uh, Little Mermaid play out in front of you. Okay. And the animatronic work is hugely impressive in that. Okay. Um, the way that, the way in which the characters move. I know we like to make fun of like uh, the Hall of Presidents and how herky and jerky and robotic the actual movements are, but when they apply it to cartoon characters, it really it really works. Um, that ride okay. and the Cars ride really stood out to me. Okay. Yeah. Until they come to life at night and yeah. then murder the night security guards. <laughs> Listen, that's a Five as... Nights at Freddy's reference. Yeah, I understand the millennials. Okay. Hashtag just as long swag. As, just as long as the ABC News and the mainstream media can keep it under wraps, we're fine. Okay. <laughs> but again, a great overall day and experience. The only exception being, John, and I, I hope we get uh, cease and desist letters from Disney on this. Okay. A number of uh, the day was belied by a number of technical glitches. Oh well, I yeah. mean. I mean, as Richard Attenborough once told us, you know, nothing worked on the first day of Disney World. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> but John, well, it was a warning. I, thankfully, I, nothing, nobody was harmed or died except my sense of security because no. <laughs> there was sound on the Incredicoaster, which is just mm-hmm. California, nay, California screaming. Um, it mm-hmm. had the great Michael Jean. Uh, Michael Giacchino score playing and the the character the Incredibles are apparently going after Jack-Jack until halfway through the ride and that sound just cut out and we were just enjoying oh, okay. the, the ride in silence <laughs> I mean was it like maybe you're supposed to just enjoy it in silence why do you I, need I mean, just a constant barrage exactly, of noise you don't, yeah exactly you don't need to it's a great roller coaster you don't yeah need exactly that. you got whoosh you got yeah. the whoosh of the wind you don't need that frumpery <laughs> I mean what's what's the best part of any coaster the clickety clack of you going up the the very tippity top, the apex, the mm-hmm. zenith, clickety clickety clickety. That, oh, that tension! You know, who needs like a fucking story to go with a roller well, coaster? Uh, well, this is a show, roller coaster that actually initially shoots you off. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. So it's well, dash. that's I'm a, I'm a roller coaster purist, so yeah. I, I don't okay. agree with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one shoots you off. Dash does a does a five second countdown because they're chasing after Jack Jack or whatever. There's okay. a story involved. They try to imagine <laughs> a story into each of these attractions. I can imagine Brad Bird at his typewriter, like, Ooh, how do I make this roller coaster compelling? 
Speak- while still staying true to the characters. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, we also went on to um, the Escape Guardians of the Galaxy ride, nay, the Hollywood Tower of Terror. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sound didn't work, the music worked, but the dialogue didn't work for the first segment of the story. So as far as okay. we could just see a silhouette of Rocket Raccoon doing something, we, we weren't sure. But Okay, fair enough. Good for them. Yeah. And then there's also a, a great ride um, called Soarin. Have you heard of Soarin? I have not. What is Soarin? Soarin is basically, it, you're sitting in this giant dome theater, like the Mugar Omni Theater, um, mm-hmm. and you, they suspend you on these like uh, kind of roller coaster-like contraptions. Well, so then you, you're not really sitting. I, no, you're still sitting, <laughs> okay. but your, your feet are dangling, and you're kind oh, of okay. immersed in this Wait, giant... Wait, did you say Sorin or Soaring? Soaring. Oh, like uh, the verb. Okay, yeah. I meant like Sorin, like a guy named Sorin. <laughs> so, yeah, like, uh, like the beloved uh, protagonist of our Kingdom Hearts games, which also... Has there a, you go, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is Sorin apostrophe, no G, but Soaring. Oh, really? Soaring oh, okay. as in flying, yeah. Okay, all right. So basically your feet dangle on and inside this kind of projection on a dome... And you mm-hmm. fly over these uh, Puget, these great attractions like uh, like the Sydney Harbor or Monument Valley National Park. Um, and again, it's a wonderful ride when it works. But the first time we actually got in there and sat down, it didn't work. <laughs> okay. So Fair we enough. yeah, we stood twenty minutes in line for nothing. But you know what? That's fine. Well, I'm glad uh, they're getting the most out of their season passes. This yeah. sounds great. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're really selling it, Greg. <laughs> Well, exactly. I I trying to deliver a little constructive criticism. Listen, I know it's late in the summer. I'm sure all the student Ugh, employees Greg there are exhausted. Greg can't help himself. When he, you give him a platform, it'll go on for ages about every little niggle. Look what happens. <laughs> it, John, it's out of the name of improvement, okay? Mm, I want to no. make sure. You used up your spotlight for this, okay? You don't get a spotlight at the end of the show. <laughs> no, I, I, try, I tried so hard to fit in an, an additional movie in, but anyway. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, you've lost your place. <laughs> I'm taking your slot away from you. But I'm glad you had fun. Unbelievable, John. I thought I thought you'd want to know. I thought you know Disney would want to know. I sure <laughs> hope they. I sure hope they don't tr- attempt to sue and bring more attention to this podcast. <laughs> well, we already mentioned Disney, so all the algorithms are now like NSA style, like bearing down on us. Like, mm-hmm. what? Did they, who said what? <laughs> yeah, terrorism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I'm sure that I'm sure they dread whenever they hear our voices. Like, oh, these two idiots again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Again, we have so much reach, they really should be concerned. <laughs> oh, sure. sure. Yep. Oh, but Greg, being in Disneyland, it must feel quite oppressive. Like you're walled in on all sides, surrounded by crooks and criminals. Awful. Awful segue. Terrible. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> oh, come on! I thought it was pretty good. No. Give terrible. me like a B-. Come on. <laughs> no, it's barely worth a C. <laughs> ah, shut up. Thumbs down. This week, this week we watched John Carpenter's Escape from New Amsterdam. Sorry, New York. security prison for the entire country. A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. From Turtle Island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they traded it for 24 beans. Mm-hmm. John, why did we watch this movie? Um, I was interested in revisiting this movie. At the certain political climate, I thought it was kind of an <laughs> interesting exploration. No, I do! I do! Come on! Uh, Even oh, though any political climate, come on. I mean, I guess that's true. There's there's one reason this movie endures, and it's Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. I mean, yeah, and and also eighties nostalgia. Let's let's also speak to that a little bit. Of course, but I mean, John Carpenter is a big old lefty. Everyone kind of knows this. Uh, if you haven't seen They Live, that pretty much spells it out for you. Okay. Um, 
So I did think it was kind of interesting to revisit this movie now, given uh, our current political climate, where, you know, there's a quite a disrespect for black people these days. Uh, white nationalists are quite empowered. And uh, there's lots of talks of building walls, building <laughs> walls and being tough on crime. And maybe that's just, you know, maybe we can revisit any time because that's always going to be the Republican national battle plan. But yeah. I don't know. I just thought it was, you know, maybe interesting or worth revisiting to see. What, what kind of semblances, what, what does it have to say about today? Because it does take place in the far-flung future year of 1997. <laughs> okay, we can all laugh at that, but... Yes. Yeah. He's, not a, he's not a soothsayer. He's not Nostradamus. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of filmmakers hope to be, but... Mm. You know, technically the same year that Terminator 2 took place in, so... Yeah, but Terminator 2 was right on the money for everything. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I mean, look, I've got my Genesis app open right now. Like, it, it sinks everything, guys. Yeah. It sinks everything, including nuclear launch codes. I'm glad I have access to those. <laughs> guys, Judgment Day's coming, okay? Mm-hmm. Be prepared. Hide your guns in Mexico. Yep. I thought that was the ultimate lesson of T2, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're thinking this movie, Escape from New York, speaks to our current political climate. You think it has something to say about the present era. Um, I would thought you really did want to revisit these 80s classics and see if they do hold up because obviously the people will fawn over this particular film because of Kurt Russell's performance and also the fantasy, what I will call a <laughs> fantasy, of a post-apocalyptic landscape wherein you, in this case, Kurt Russell, is the lone hero. <laughs> Only he can save the day rather, right. than, rather than living in a stable, pluralistic society. <laughs> Craig, are you accusing people who have an appreciation for 80s action movies to have very simple tastes? I've, I think that's very unfair. <laughs> Uh, simple simple might be overcomplicating it, I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you enjoy the film, Greg? Uh, no, because my next question is, like, are you sure you didn't want to watch this film because you needed an Ambien? Oh, This movie Greg. is boring! <laughs> God, this movie was homework. I hated it. <laughs> oh, Greg. Yeah, this... Th- I can't believe that IMDb has the gall to call this an action movie when there is indeed no action in it. <laughs> okay, yes, this is the kind of unsung secret about uh, John Carpenter. He His films are very slowly paced. Yeah. And I like to think it's because he probably grew up watching a lot of 50s B-movies, and so that's where he learned all his And that's what from. this is. Half of it takes place in a lab somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Because or, or we need room. to spend, like, 20 minutes of people fiddling with knobs and buttons and going yeah. through protocol like it's important that we capture all of this <laughs> so on the one hand i do kind of appreciate that but you're right it does not keep it from being boring <laughs> no this as is... an action movie quote-unquote spectacle it definitely does flop on the spectacle aspect yeah and also this being a post-apocalyptic movie you'd, you'd think it'd have something more in its mind you're you're talking about like john carpenter's leftist politics or something i don't know where the heck you're getting this because this movie doesn't engage <laughs> in a single idea um I, it's just I the president it's... the president has been taken hostage you're a badass superhero don't, don't go <laughs> go break him out i mean th- but there's a whole backstory of crime raising 400 percent. so how do they solve the solution or how do they fix this they mm. walled off new york city and basically turned it into the one maximum security prison for the whole united states and there's other kind of nods little touches to the fact that yes now america is pretty much a police state i i wouldn't go that far again <laughs> okay if, if this movie had a brain in its head it would think like <laughs> well you're talking about the most valuable real estate on the planet yes things weren't great in the 70s <laughs> but also it doesn't engage in that racial or class question as you said it's just these kind of generic looking 80s thugs which I, I don't know if this movie set the template for them or it was just adopting them for the warriors or something but it doesn't really engage in any of those ideas it's just now hold on greg they probably adopt them wholesale from mad max more than anything come oh, on okay yeah but at least those post-apocalyptic fantasies saying say something about our you know current nuclear armament or dependence on oil or <laughs> something i mean this just says like hey i thought it was more like what what if we just made New York City this hellhole of New York City our playground for an action movie? <laughs> like, um, well, you know, we gotta actually we gotta actually wall it off and make sure that, that there's no escape, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but they do have fun with it. I do kind of appreciate how many kind of like <laughs> things they managed. I wish they kind of managed to do more with it, but it is kind of interesting to see like how society would collapse and what would happen if a population of criminals were like expected to live and survive. You know, they have their own little like booming economy. They have their own guy who can kind of knows everything. His name is the brain played by Harry Dean Stanton. 
giving uh, classic uh, nothing, Harry uh, Dean nothing role. He just sits in the library all day. <laughs> Greg, what do you expect from Harry Dean Stan? Okay, I, I expect more. I expect uh, the, like a a star making performance in Alien. No, where he goes after the cat, and you feel and you feel something for his character. I mean, maybe that was the joke. Is the fact that you know Harry Dean Stanton's very flat. He's very, uh, let's say, it, not very cerebral. So to cast him as the brain is kind of like you know a little inside joke. I Come know on. we're yeah, having fun. We're having fun. But where was the where's a character to contrast with Snake Plissken? I guess we should also speak to my other point of hatred for this movie. <laughs> okay, and that is a performance by Kirk Russell. <laughs> I mean, he's the only one who seems like he kind of knows what movies he's in right now. I, maybe, but that doesn't. It's not helped by probably the worst affectation I've ever heard and put on by a leading man. <laughs> and it's this, it's this phony whisper. <laughs> maybe it's because maybe it's because he's a soft Hollywood fancy boy, and he's never <laughs> smoked a cigarette in his life, as far as I know. But he does this, he does this terrible whisper, and he over enunciates his words because of it. I think. And I I never bought it for a second. So Greg, he's, he's a badass. War he's a he's supposed it. That's the idea. In execution, Aww. though, it, it falls utterly flat. Who are you? Hauk. Police Commissioner. Bob Hauk. Special Forces Unit, Texas Thunder. We heard of you, too, Pliskin. Why are we talking? I have a deal for you. You received full pardon for every criminal action you've committed in the United States. It was an accident. About an hour ago, a small jet went down inside New York City. The president was on board. President of what? That's not funny, Pliskin. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullshit. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a fuck about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? I'm thinking about it. Think hard. Greg, he's doing his best improv troops impression of Clint Eastwood. Okay? Come mm-hmm. on. I, Out of I everyone can. in the improv troupe, they're like, give this guy the impressions. He's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like our Frank Caliendo. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, like I said, he's the only one who kind of knows what kind of movie he's in. Everyone else is kind of playing it completely straight or as straight as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, Isaac Hayes is also in this movie. It's probably the closest thing this movie has to a main antagonist, which is uh, the Duke of New York, A number one. Mm. Do you well, want to at least speak to uh, speak to him and his? Quote, well, that's a th- performance. He, he barely exactly. He barely makes an impression either. Mm-hmm. You thought that this movie would engage an idea <laughs> and ideas. Unfortunately, it has nothing going on. Nothing is ever talked out. I mean. I'm surprised dialogue scenes last longer than about four minutes and maybe 14 lines because there's way too much time between lines. Okay. Again, John Carpenter is not going to be rushed. He's not. (laughs) Greg, John Carpenter makes movies so that we can hear his soundtrack, okay? And that soundtrack comes through in spades. (laughs) Well, first, let's get to Isaac Hayes, a man of actual musical talent. Oh, okay. (laughs) Ouch. Ouch. Because yeah, exactly. Because you want to see signs of ruthlessness here, but he's not introduced until about halfway through the movie. Mm-hmm. As the guy who's actually taken hostage, there's another go-between. Um, who I will say, like, give a props to that actor and the costume design on that on that particular character because there is mm-hmm. something extremely off about him, and I don't believe he's done another movie since. <laughs> oh. <laughs> There's something fantastically off about this this little henchman and his his giant white fro. <laughs> He's also just all his uh, movements are very kind of angular. Like yeah. everything he does, just kind of like is very extremely stiff. He's almost like a robot. He's very yeah. weird. He's got like this great tweaker esque sensibility about him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Isaac Hayes, I mean, he's just uh, maybe it's due to his limits as an actor. But there's <laughs> no. I think I think it required a, a certain control or authority. Mm. And he doesn't really project that. I was again, my mind went back to the the warriors, and I thought he was going to be the a big ringleader, like a can you dig it, like have authority over his minions. But that never that never really comes to fore, does it? Well, we have that one scene where we have the kind of uh, battle royale, the little match that he sets up with Snake Plissken and that gigantic like Russian esque guy with oh, the big mustache. Yeah, oh, um, ri- riveting. <laughs> I loved I loved that <laughs> shot in particular when we were like fifty feet away. <laughs> I mean, give me a close-up. <laughs> give me <Okay>. something. <laughs> Come on, John Carpenter. It is kind of weird because that is like the closest scene where we have him kind of have everyone wrapped in attention. But even then, it's like 
kind of a little off because mm. he's like halfway through a sentence and then people will cheer and then he'll finish it off and they'll cheer again but it's yeah. like that wasn't a good cheer line yeah. like <laughs> but again maybe that's the point because these are prisoners they're obviously not meant to be too well organized and also half of them are like crazy they're all suffering from mental illness and there's mm-hmm. a certain part of town where only like the really really kind of like mentally sick people hang out <laughs> and they live under the floorboards and grab at you like the graboids from tremors <laughs> yeah well even then they don't feel like much of a threat no absolutely because not. that that happens once I guess if there is if the action scenes, such as they are, consist of uh, no no score or anything, but the snake landing a glider into mm-hmm. I don't know why it had to be glider. I don't know why they couldn't just <laughs> drop him in because it's the, the future, Greg. It's the future. Yeah, that's this true. is what all planes will look like in 1997. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, he has to land on the roof of of the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, we'll. We won't we won't be logic pedants and just be like uh Sin counter the, the the roof of the World Trade Center is way too short for a runway. <laughs> but th- that's like kind of our first action set piece. And then immediately following that you do feel this threat of like, oh these mutants are coming out from under the <laughs> under the, the, su- the, out of the sewers, the sewers yeah, out of the yeah, sewers in the basements, yeah. yeah. But they just run past him initially. I- yeah. Well, they also and, have a car, so you know that also kind of minimizes any threat. That too, and they're only established, I, th- I believe, with one line of dialogue from the cabbie played by Ernest Borgnine. Ah, uh, yes, the one who stole the show for me. Uh, yes, the only character with actually any interest on screen. <laughs> the one with only with any personality, and with, and I spoke to Russell's performance earlier, where the affectation works, like the silliness. Like I can, I can, I can sort of understand. <laughs> Well, again, it's a great contrast is the fact that, you know, here's a guy who's very affable. Like, I, the whole time I was wondering, what did he do that led him to be living on New York? Well, apparently, time? yeah, I think I think they just said it's just a massive prison for everybody. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, they just left people on the island. Like, hey, you li- <laughs> hey, you made your living in Man- on Manhattan? Um, t- tough tough luck. You're in a prison now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're probably a criminal. Again, just, yeah. like, just like people who cross the border today. You're probably a criminal. <laughs> That's all the due process we need. Exactly. Lock you up. Yeah. Lock yeah. them up. Lock them up. Exactly. Um, thank you. Thank yeah. you, Ice, for protecting me from a Guatemalan mother of two. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, yeah, obviously he's the highlight of the movie because, again, it's a great contrast. You know, this very serious, very dangerous situation. He's just rolling up like, "Hey, you guys need a lift somewhere? Oh, I know these streets like the back of my hand." <laughs> he's playing like old timey jazz. <laughs> yeah, and it only, ha- but he's only in the movie for about fifteen minutes because he gives he gives Kurt Russell a ride to the brain. Mm-hmm. And then he's out of the movie until he comes back. Well, no, and he's the savior. He's the one who rolls up just in time to save our poor heroes. I guess, but why wasn't he around <laughs> that whole time? <laughs> because with a character, maybe like you could that, have characterized him sparingly, sparingly. No, maybe they could characterize spi- him. No, they no. could have characterized him to be more cowardly, maybe, and then that's what drove him back. Uh, really, maybe an affection for Brain, maybe an affection for Brain's girl, or mm. I don't know. Greg, um, really, you, who are you hiring Ernest Borgnine for? For like a really multi multi level rich character? No, I don't think so. You're hiring yes, Eric. You are Oscar winner Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> where did he get? Where did he win for? I, I think I believe he won for Marty. Okay. Yeah. Tangent. Where did he get his start in his career? Because I know who Ernest Borgnine was a through The Simpsons, and that's yeah. pretty much it. And he's always seemed like a joke to me. I don't know why he has like the kind of career that he has. <laughs> why you, can you he, explain this? Uh, I'm sorry. Well, as Ernest Borgnine's biographer, let me. <laughs> you know about Hollywood history. Yeah. Tell me more about Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> yeah. I believe he got his start in the 40s and 50s when they were just churning out productions. Okay. And I think as he grew older, they cast him specifically for his affability. Okay. Um, he won, I believe, again, completely unconfirmed. If we're wrong, please tell us in the comments. Please <laughs> please comment, please tweet at us that we're wrong. <laughs> but he won his performance as Marty as somewhat of a put-upon character who's, uh, who's not who's not romantically strong. So, yeah, I think that pe- people have a lot of affection for him. Also, I mean, he's not, he's not the most handsome man in the world. I think mm. that also leads to his relatability. And during the 70s, 80s, he did kind of lose that leading man ability. However, he's fit perfectly as an affable sporting character. Okay. And in this case, I, again, I relished the his introduction because it it seemed like we were finally getting somewhere and establishing this world because 
Kurt Russell rolls, rolls into this theater. He's hearing this strange, like, jaunty tune, and it turns out to be, like, prisoners performing this silly, you know, Broadway show tune. <laughs> this, like, cabaret On kind stage, of style. Yeah, They're all yeah. wearing drag. Yeah, to, like, four to like four people in a giant theater. <laughs> and I thought, like, okay, we're, we're getting somewhere here now. Like, we're, we're world-building, and also, like, I'm engaged more than I was just <laughs> through uh, Kurt Russell silently, silently dra- traipsing through the street, like, doing, like, mm. doing his worst <laughs> Clint Eastwood impression. <laughs> That's the Duke. I know the sound of his engines. Don't cross the Duke. Everybody knows that. Cabby, you slime. a moment where they discover that the uh, president like they have a tracker on the president and snake Plissken is able to uh, locate it but it's not on the president anymore they've they've attached it to a homeless person and really that's the other thing i also kind of wonder how many people were actually prisoners and how many people were just homeless that they left (laughs) in new york Uh, yeah (laughs) that also would be a good explanation um and so he finds it, and it's kind of like the lowest point. It's and you know just to punctuate this, we just get yeah, like that's four the lowest minutes. point. Instead of instead of one zig in in our in our story, which should have multiple zigzags, shouldn't it? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> instead, it's something that's into, that's utterly predictable and like, oh no, like what what are we gonna do now? <laughs> exactly. Well, and to punctuate this, we get like four minutes of Kurt Russell just kind of like putting around the, the street, just like flips over a chair, just like sits down for a minute, and just eh, gets up again. <laughs> I don't know. There's something funny about the way how deliberately paced John Carpenter films are. I think. I think it's kind of like amusing. I, well, if we we should we should probably explain. We're only speaking based on reputation. I know. Mean, yes, that's true. If yeah. the rest of his filmography is anything like this, then I'm not looking forward to seeing another John Carpenter movie. Oh no, Greg. Greg, he's a part of film history. I, I guess. Um, yeah. Because speaking a little bit more to production history, he had a big hit with Halloween, released three mm-hmm. years prior. And then he did another horror movie called The Fog, which is also somewhat of a hit. And he, he wrote this movie years and years prior to that. Yeah. And so, like, finally, he, he has a little bit of cachet. He's like, this is the movie I want to make. And I will, you know, quality production value, we'll give it that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the uh, production, if they shot in New York, the production value didn't have to change at all. <laughs> well, no, of course, they shot it in East St. Louis instead, which is yes. also a, an American ex- uh, uh, American exemplar of decrepitude. and. <laughs> I was also kind of impressed. Like I was like, "Wow, that futuristic like uh, police post sure looks like the aquifers in L.A." Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no hiding that. I mean, that's a yeah. No, nobody knew of that famous aqueduct. You know, <laughs> I guess that's true. It. Yeah. But given credit, I mean, I, and this movie has endured in spite of the uh, possible, you know, tastelessness and negative feelings that this can evoke. But uh, movie starts with Air Force One being hijacked and then flown into the area of the World Trade Center, not the tower itself, but... No, but yes, we do see, like, a little video graphic of it actually running into a building, which, yeah. you know, oh, unfortunate. But once, finally, like, the the movie expands and Kurt Russell stumbles upon the uh, uh, crash site, it actually, like, works, It's it feels really immersive, so I will give the the film credit for that. And also, mm-hmm. you brought up this, we see the, the graphic itself... Um, really incredible, like what the solution for this um, this special <laughs> effect was, because um, it looks like a computer-generated wireframe. What mm-hmm. it actually is is models of the of the New York City skyline, painted black, except for the outlines, kind of have this uh, wireframe around them, and yep. they just kind of uh, gently, steadily uh, uh, glided this camera through the city streets, <laughs> and it it's really well done. Yeah, it actually looks like computer-generated graphics, which mm-hmm. apparently, like, I had no idea that this movie was made so early in the 80s. Like, when I think of this movie, I think, like, mid-80s, kind of, again, with a character like Snake Plissken. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that's got to be, like, Commando Arrow or something like that. But apparently, no, this was extremely early 80s, and they couldn't even, like, fake computer graphics <laughs> at that mm-hmm. point. We still haven't reached, like, Tron level of uh, special effects, I guess. But, I mean, yeah, it's, well, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's really well done. 
Yeah, Th- that is really well done. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> but speaking, yeah, I, I'm glad you evoked Commando because at least those had the good sense to be um, so much schlocky. <laughs> oh, okay. Enter- entertaining uh, with it's kind of like bare level of tastelessness. This, <laughs> this there's just there's nothing going on upstairs and there's nothing going on on screen. Like I was just I was just praying for something interesting to happen and it never does. Like even I mentioned earlier that that gladiatorial fight scene. Mm-hmm. Which happens because uh, it's part of it's part and parcel of every post-apocalyptic vision. Like we have to hey, go back to these these gladiatorial blood sports savages. Yeah, and in this case, it takes place in the third act. But the way it's shot was so like it just boiled my blood because <laughs> it's it's established like the camera's way too far away. And there's another shot where it kind of dollies over. And at one point, Kurt Russell and his and his combatant are behind the turnstile. You can't see them. <laughs> and I'm like, this is this is where we should really feel for our character, and he should be vulnerable in this moment. And we're not. And the direction isn't giving us that. <laughs> Greg, come on. John Carpenter is not a stylist, okay? He puts the camera <laughs> no. down, the music plays, and that's all you need. That's all you uh, need. Uh, speak, uh, speaking of music, I mean, this Yeah. This also so I mean, I, John well, Carpenter writes the music for his movies and, and good on him. I mean, I, I there's a there's a, probably a prevailing theory that John Carpenter is just a frustrated composer and he got into movie making <laughs> just the excuse to have a movie play his music. Like that's what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, well, I, again, good on him for being the writer director as well as composer. It, it really kind of speaks to an auteur theory and having mm. one man kind of control all these aspects of of filmmaking, which is, or, which is incredibly difficult. Or as you said, uh, <laughs> maybe hand it off to somebody else who would do a better job. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, because he wanted he wants his music to be basically wallpaper. Yeah. Um, wherein it, it like it doesn't really it doesn't really uh, overwhelm the image. Uh, however, I could speak to my personal taste. I would rather <laughs> that the music really does enhance the drama by overwhelming it and really coming to the fore. And no, it's really it just, good. It's really good at setting the mood, which is why I think John Carpenter is much more successful at horror movies than, say, his kind of like more sci-fi action. I mean, granted, yeah. I've never seen Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> Who knows what that movie is like? That seems like it's combining best of both worlds, and I'm yeah. sure it is. But yeah, uh, it's funny that you brought up like auteur theory. Like, yes, this man had a hand in everything, or he just half-assed everything he could. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, again, the auteur theory you want it to, you want it to actually work you want to believe that you know the one one incredible genius could bring all this to life and you know we didn't have to rely on or, or give credit to somebody as simple or somebody who we don't know or doesn't have a cult of personality like the production designer or mm-hmm. yeah. or the prop master mm-hmm. or even the the conductor of the orchestra and how much they can they can evoke rather than relying on just electronic music you can do on a keyboard I think well, that's maybe, the other problem too, and in, it, it, in addition to just the monotony of the score, <laughs> I think he's just also just limiting himself because he doesn't know how to how to maybe you know bring in all these other elements or or bring something distinctive to it other than just electronica that's that's playing in the background. Well, also he has those again. This is probably harkening back to his you know what he watched as in the fifties and sixties. Like you have those very obvious mu- music things. Like you have that early shot where Pliskin is going down the World Trade Center, and you know he's looking around and there's nothing there. But then you have that silhouette run behind him, and then there's a very like eh, he leans on yeah. the keyboard. <laughs> um, yeah. And I was I, I remember that moment. I was like, finally something. <laughs> <laughs> but then it never comes out of anything because he just walks out of the World Trade Center just fine. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's that that fear that you know these people are lurking but i mean they don't really come to the fore i don't yeah. I, and speaking of that scene there's another character who comes out and shows some personality she starts courting a, a snake in this rundown mm-hmm. diner or something and again i was thinking like okay we're injecting some personality that here's the taciturn snake with this pretty open and honest woman Mm-hmm. But she just gets taken by these mutants and is never seen or heard from again. <laughs> nope, absolutely not. So it felt, yeah, and I believe it was just a, a casting favor. <laughs> like somebody said, hey, can you cast your this uh, my girlfriend in your movie? And then he did. Well, I think that's probably what it was because I was reading the opening credits because there's nothing else going on screen. It's literally yeah. just a white on black text. And it says introducing this woman. Mm-hmm. And I assumed it was either her or whatever uh, Brain's main squeezes. I don't even think she gets a yeah. name. <laughs> they just refer to her as Brain's main squeeze. Mm-hmm. Even so though you're yeah, she's right, part of the yeah. final. Yeah, she, even though she's part of the final crew that's uh, helping mm-hmm. escort the president off this prison island. <laughs> exactly. I mean, but maybe like. I mean, another reason why I wanted to revisit this, because I'll be honest, I haven't seen a lot of John Carpenter movies, and I want to understand why he does have this cult of personality around him. Mm. And I do think it does speak to the fact that 
his movies do feel like they have a bit of a handmade quality to them. Like, again, he does all his own music. They're not very exciting. <laughs> um, doesn't try to do anything too ambitious. So I do think that there is something about him that probably inspires a lot of aspiring filmmakers. That it's like, yeah, you too can grab all your friends and just shoot something in the backyard for, like, 12 bucks a pop. And, you yeah. know, have and fill it with all your little esoteric interests. Make it sci-fi. Make it semi-political. Make it a horror movie. So I do think that's why people probably appreciate John Carpenter from the... Because of that era, you know, the VHS era. It definitely feels like he probably would have made it in the other era a- than Exactly. That. I, I never thought of that. And you're right to speak a little bit more to this kind of... This masculine fantasy as well. <laughs> because you have these... You have these um, strong men well in the case of halloween also strong women yeah um but they mostly center around strong men uh, i'm thinking in particular stink Pliskin and rowdy roddy viper in <laughs> they live uh, they live yeah <laughs> thing I, I came here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and i'm all out of bubblegum like you know you can also play in those fantasies as well and they're and it simple is... and they're simple too i mean they're they're not saying a whole lot i was just waiting for something to engage because we should also explain the other big implication here in that the president being taken hostage is because he's carrying a tape that will apparently just elicit world peace and complete denuclearization. Um, exactly. That's not really explained, but what I really wanted to, like Snake to say is, like, well, so what? I mean, like, I'm living a, a destitute life as a prisoner. I don't have a wife, children. Like, what do I care if the world, like, goes up in a nuclear holocaust? Which he does now? kind of say. Which he does kind of admit to when they're first trying to court him into going on this dangerous mission. He's like, fuck your country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's it ever done for him? It implies that he used to be a special forces and the company, and the, yeah, not the company, the country kind of betrayed him at one point. I yeah. think the only well, reference Well, why not, why not like, say that to the big baddie who's keeping him hostage? Why not, keep, why not keep this idea going? <laughs> and instead they just, instead it's kind of the, the stupid, you know, forcing them with the, the, the bomb in the neck or something. Which exactly. It wasn't yeah. a cliche at that point, but it is, it's been imitated now for many, many movies. Um, well, it also, most recently, like, it, Suicide Squad, which <laughs> I'd be stunned if people who love, love Escape from New York but don't like Suicide Squad, even though they're pretty much the exact same movie. <laughs> but here's the key difference, and also why Escape from New York kind of doesn't work. At least with Suicide Squad, those bombs get deactivated, and then they actively have to make the choice to be the heroes, <laughs> as opposed mm-hmm. to Snake Plissken, who gets no agency. He literally really has yeah. to do this so he can survive and what mm-hmm. does he do at the end he switches out the tapes so when it comes time for the president to play the cassette tape that'll cause world peace it turns out he switched it out for one of uh, cabbie's little jazz tunes which i thought was very funny but then we get a insert shot of snake Pliskin tearing the other one apart and i was like oh okay so he doesn't want world peace like i i thought that was setting up like a like a james bond-esque moment where like it does feel like because, they're trying to set because, up sequels. Yeah, it does feel yeah, like they're trying they, to set up sequels because he's like, we could use you for other missions. Yeah. There's also a reversal, like um, his commanding officer, whoever, the man who charges him with this assignment, um, calls him Pliskin, and he says, no, it's Snake. And at the mm-hmm. end, there's a reversal. Like it, it seems like he's accepting him personally. He's like, no, see me as your soldier instead. Mm-hmm. And go ahead and keep giving me these assignments if you'd like <laughs> yeah. for, for, ultra, for other lucrative movies in the future. <laughs> Which the, we wouldn't get a sequel until like fifteen years later. Yeah, in the in the wonderful Escape from LA. <laughs> oh, we should watch that one instead. That one's more fun. Exactly. And we get closer if, to it. We could relate. Yeah, exactly. I I would love to see Snake Plissken, you know, riding down a giant uh, wave with Peter Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Peter Fonda was in that movie? Oh, yeah. I thought he was he dead by then. No, you're thinking of Henry Fonda. <laughs> oh, okay, my bad. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, just imagine that. Oh. <laughs> I, <laughs> you old poop, get on the surfboard, you old poop. <laughs> uh, when are we going to start digitizing all our old actors so we can bring them back to life? I want a hologram I, I'm sure we already Peter can. Fonda. I'm sure we can. Henry Fonda. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Fonda has had a, a long career. I'm sure we can just stick all his movies into an algorithm and spit out <laughs> yeah. the equivalent. Thank goodness we've already got Kurt Russell in a Marvel film, so now we have him digitized. <laughs> yeah. Because we need to de-age him 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh, creepy. Well, and a wonderful, yeah, and a wonderful effect. <laughs> it worked perfectly, guys. Great work. <laughs>
and sadly we won't get to see him for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I know. Well, maybe uh, he'll come back in a cameo appearance, like uh, Ra's al Ghul in the last Batman movie. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> Bringing them all together. Well, see, I, I, it's a pity that we don't prepare for this, because I didn't think that I would be the one left defending. I prepare for this. <laughs> I came I came with all my points clearly laid out, and obviously I won the argument. I won the day. <laughs> well, no, you put me in the predicament of defending this movie. When I know how boring I it is, I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> Well, again, you didn't have to. Just agree with me, and then we'll be all set. And we can say, anybody who enjoys this film is an idiot and should grow up. (laughs) Fair point, fair point. As much as it would be fun to do that every week, sadly we cannot. No, we want to be positive. Exactly, but every week we do make time to for a little positivity in our patented recommendation segment, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie! It's time! Which you've forgone because you went it's on for like 20 minutes about Disney World, and I don't want to hear another thing from you. So. I, I, don't have to, I don't have anything from Disney World to recommend uh, for Spotlight. Instead, I have something else. Okay, fine. Something fine. that may surprise you. All right. For people who are sick of Greg Mantell talking, you can shut it off now because nice. here we go another 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, what other Sterling content did you have ready for the show, John? Oh. <laughs> You know what? You're just going to have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. All why right. don't we, yeah, why don't we wait? <laughs> I've got what, 10 minutes for to what find CW something. Show, yes, for what CW show you have to tell us that you watched this week. Correct. I don't need to tell everyone how great Riverdale is, okay? They already know, okay? <laughs> All right. Yeah, this will become a Riverdale podcast. <laughs> Let's recap and talk about the... I don't know. What, what do people talk about on those recap shows? <laughs> I have no idea. Also, isn't the internet inundated enough with enough Riverdale podcasts? <laughs> and and uh, sure, who the heck knows? Anyway, yeah. what do you have for Spotlight, Greg? Go. I've got I've got something interesting for you. Okay. Because you know I am squarer than square. Mm-hmm. I am like a cube. Don't do drugs. Hate hippies. <laughs> <laughs> and and basically, I'm a a uh, pretty clean cut uh, member of society. Yes, indeed, you are. However, I just wanted to express my affection for a movie that came out 20 years ago this year. Okay. Um, which is about none of those things. <laughs> I want to recommend the movie adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, directed by Terry Gilliam and starring Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I, if I, if there's one director I assumed Greg would hate every single movie of his, <laughs> I would assume it was Terry Gilliam. <laughs> oh, oh, you're, you're writing a few accounts, but this one... Okay. This one I can I can recommend. Uh, I can also thank YouTube's wonderful algorithms um, for this recommendation because um, without them I wouldn't have seen a clip and thought oh that's interesting and then gone to gone to Netflix and figured out exactly what I was watching. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> now granted the the rest of the movie the context of the rest of the movie doesn't help. This is, movie is abs utter nonsense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I think I I appreciate it for that because it opens with. Well, what's interesting about it is that it opens with stock footage and old newsreels of uh, 60s protests, and is mm-hmm. more speaking to the political activism and the enthusiasm of a younger generation in 1968 and 1969. Mm-hmm. Um, then we immediately run into the drug-fueled adventures of Raoul Duke and his, uh, and his attorney, Dr. Gonzo, okay. <laughs> on a drug-fueled adventure to Las Vegas in 1971. All right. So it's like so part of part of it is tinged by that that notion that all their work was for nothing, okay. <laughs> and that nothing changed. <laughs> Got it. So it's capturing that you know uh, utopian optimism of the '60s into that drug-fueled malaise of the '70s. Got it. Indeed, I, I wouldn't call it a malaise. I would call it a, a psychosis because okay. <laughs> film opens with Hunter S. Thompson's inimitable uh, uh, opening lines to the novel, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Like, uh, we were just out of our store when the drugs kicked in, and we're surrounded by bats now (laughs) in our convertible in the middle of the desert. (laughs) Got it. Does it imply uh, that both of them have the same drug trip or same drug experience at the same time? Well, like, well it it's all Raul Dahl. I think he, he, well, in that opening scene, he does say, like, well, Dr. Doctor Gonzo, we'll see these bats soon enough. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. There's another great sequence when they're in the, I'm not sure if it's actually real. I'm, I'm assuming he invented it, because it is a nightmare of a casino. It's mm-hmm. themed after a circus, and it's called, like, the Bazooka, uh, Bazooka Casino. I mean, there is Circus Circus. That is a real casino, so maybe, maybe that's, that's it. Like the, but they're, yeah. at a, they're at a bar that is literally on a carousel. Oh, okay. And the 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 bar itself 
is turning in a different direction than the seat surrounding it, which is turning on the, against the floor, <laughs> against the rest of the casino floor. Again, I can't believe that it's real, but it's a, it's a kind of a wonderful sequence, and that's there's a little title drop there. That's when uh, Doctor Gonzo gets the fear um, <laughs> because they're because they're high on ether. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, in spite of every every flaw this movie has, not really telling a coherent story, um, these two characters being absolute degenerate a-holes, and okay, <laughs> and again just being utter nonsense. There, there's an entire just through line. You can just kind of give yourself away <laughs> to the entire tone of the story and just the well, madness that ensues. Like, I think that's that's what I appreciate. Is like it doesn't it doesn't even pretend to explain some sort of reality. We're just off in this world instead. Well, and I mean. Obviously, Terry Gilliam has a very loose uh, relationship with story and structure. So Mm -hmm. I think this movie, I assumed this movie would work best out of all his other films because, again, it is a drug-fueled trip as opposed to, like, say, you know, Brazil or The Brothers Grimm or whatever where he's trying to tell some kind of, like, focused narrative and he clearly can't accomplish that because he's high on drugs (laughs) the whole time. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't think he's not. It's just his imagination. Maybe there's, like, some disconnect there. And maybe in trying to tell somebody else's story, like we can, we can come to some consensus. <laughs> um, even though the movie wasn't that well received in 1998, mm-hmm. so again, I, I can't believe that I'm, I'm against critics here in conventional <laughs> wisdom. Like I thought, I thought it worked out really well. Well, great critics don't like a lot of movies that are first of their kinds, like Citizen Kane, for example. That's that's true. Um, or John Citizen Carpenter's Kane. The Thing. Yeah, or Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, uh, which will, I think will be regarded as a classic uh, in just uh, ten years' time. <laughs> we can only hope. We can only hope. Yeah. We're hiding. We're riding high on this train. Exactly. So I mean, I can also speak to how cartoony uh, Johnny Depp and Benicio del Toro are. Um, they're doing no. a lot of hand. <laughs> You're I know it's hard to believe. I know it's hard to believe, but yeah, <laughs> doing a lot of hand acting. Um, okay. But I think eventually they come around uh, and and act just a, just a tad more human and settle into the characters a little bit because there's one scene in particular where it's a close up at a Dutch angle. I know it's a shock <laughs> from a Terry in a Terry and Gilliam movie. <laughs> But he's got his uh, his uh, Johnny Depp has his hand on uh, Hunter S. Thompson's uh, trademark cigarette holder, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a, it's just kind of a, a completely unbelievable affectation, like Kurt Russell's whisper in <laughs> in Escape from New York. However, because the rest of the movie is just utter ridiculousness, it 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 sort of you sort of buy into it, and we'll forgive it for that. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm it's, kinda, so it's, I, I, I'm I'm as surprised as you that you liked it because I thought yeah. for sure you would hate it. I I did too. I mean, because again, I'm 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 square. I'm I'm the exact kind of um square person that uh, Raul Duke and Doctor Gonzo would mess with. Um, oh, okay, <laughs> maybe on an on an ether binge, but. <laughs> well, I mean, as we learned last week when we watched Breathless, like apparently you have an affinity for shapeless, voidless garbage. So. There you go. <laughs> how how dare how dare you say that about our beloved Breathless? Okay, <laughs> no. That one, every, that one, every critic agrees is the greatest film ever made. <laughs> you, you hippies, enjoy your your French New Wave. Ooh, la la, gross, gross. <laughs> frogs to me. Well, I like another. I like another sophisticated piece of entertainment in this case. <laughs> um, when Benicio del Toro tries to uh, ki- uh, commit suicide by throwing a radio playing Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit um, into the tub, <laughs> filled okay. with orange, filled with orange peels and empty beer cans like that's a, interesting yeah that's that's an image in itself <laughs> oh fun i assume the orange peels were from like some kind of old-fashioned or something like that it seems maybe, like an old-fashioned maybe, well it's part of the, it's part of their kit i mean they've got a suitcase full of mescaline and cocaine and <laughs> okay <laughs> just seeing how far they can take this this particular trip um but there is produce as well presumably because uh, for those that don't know this, um, <laughs> there there is a stop on every road going to California. They do stop and ask if you have any produce. Um, ah, okay. Yeah, so I'm sure they just wanted to flout the rules in that case. <laughs> okay, I I heard oranges make the mescaline go down easier. You know, it's like soccer practice. You need orange slices at the end of it. Yeah, keep the, keep that energy up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Again, I don't know anything about drugs. So. <laughs> well, I know so much about drugs. Let me tell you mm-hmm. what pairs well with what. Yeah. Chablis goes great with mescaline. I, and ayahuasca, you want to pair with a nice dry Chardonnay. Yeah. <laughs> and you know so much about MDMA. I mean, you and Joe Rogan are pretty much <laughs> not just podcast kings, are podcast kings because of the MDMA. <laughs> of course. 
that's what that's the secret to my success in podcasting mm-hmm. how else do you think i've done almost 100 episodes of this with greg of all people oh god <laughs> i've carried you <laughs> i'm the mad dog in this relationship you're mike <laughs> oh, wow john Ouch. you're crazy <laughs> that hurts that hurts <laughs> Well, Greg, for Spotlight for you today, unfortunately, I have another podcast I need to recommend. But what? it's okay, because it's seasonal. How effing dare you? You want to take my my Spotlight privileges away, and you're going <laughs> to you're gonna promote another podcast? Unbelievable. But it's okay. It's okay, because it's seasonal. So it's not available every week. Okay, great. As opposed to us, who work damn hard every week to bring this podcast to the world. To the world. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking to other podcast hosts, I mean, come on, get your get your stuff together. I mean, yeah. we, can, we, two idiots, can do this every week. I mean, how hard is it? <laughs> exactly. It's all these, ooh, dogged news reporters who are trying to give you the facts and show how well-researched everything is. Ugh, boring. <laughs> just talk and prattle on about nothing. Come on. Yeah. But no, I want to recommend the podcast, which has just recently started its second season, Slow Burn. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, it's, you don't like a, history? This is a New York Times. Yeah, this is a New York Times joint, right? No, it's actually Slate. So it's kind of worse. Oh, even better. <laughs> My other favorite <laughs> website of record. <laughs> so John, so John, please, please explain slow burn to the listeners and you know anybody anybody who doesn't want to have them recapitulate and <laughs> regurgitate history to us, please. <laughs> well, so slow burn is a podcast basically about impeachment. That's the main theme. And mm-hmm. so in the first season, they explored the uh, Richard Nixon impeachment, and then this season, the newest one, which they're only about three episodes in, they explore the Bill Clinton impeachment trials. Mm. I wonder why. <laughs> why is impeachment <laughs> such a topic to talk about right now? I th- this is called sub-podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of fascinating because it is interesting to see all the kind of like overlaps, and again, just all the things, like, again... Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, and it's funny listening to all the same <laughs> No shit, as to tell the American people that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of funny listening to it in context and hearing all the same talking points when Richard okay. Nixon was threatened with impeachment. Oh, it's a witch hunt. It's just the Democrats trying to get him. Like, clearly, the liberal media is against him. Mm. And, you know, with the same thing with Bill Clinton when, you know, they were threatening him with impeachment. Oh, this is a nothing burger. Come on, there's no collusion. What's going on? You know, it's just kind of funny that impeachment even though it you know it's so entangled with criminal proceedings is ultimately a political action and so it's just the same political talking points over and over again but it is kind of fascinating to because what it does is it it goes into more depth about the kind of interesting personalities like for um nixon's uh there was this woman oh gosh i need to look her up her name is martha but she was like the wife to a, a, a Washington insider and she mm-hmm. kind of knew about everything that was going on with Watergate before everybody else but she was also kind of a bit uh, let's say foppish she was kind of a gadfly kind of like constantly drunk <laughs> so when she was kind <laughs> awesome. of like exactly so she was kind of like if she was in the news it was kind of more in a tabloid context so when she started spouting on it's like Nixon knew about these burglars he ordered them everyone's like okay you're drunk why don't you just back down but she knew she knew the truth the whole time Okay. So it's just kind of interesting to hear those kind of like, again, because we're so far separated from it. And, you know, unfortunately, we have kind of like forgotten about it, forgotten all the context and forgotten all the details. No, well, that's not my problem with it and why I'm so dismissive of this, of this idea. Um, mm-hmm. Because I don't feel like we've we've forgotten about the idea. I feel like it's a, this kind of insider media, particularly Slate and the Washington Post and the the New York Times, their their issue is not being the the mainstream media and bias. Mm-hmm. It's more of this kind of cozy relationship with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's trying to espouse like oh this forgotten history like and and explaining impeachment as a political action. I think it's more like we don't like the current president, so we're going to post our way out of, to get him out of office. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna send out subtweets and sub podcast sub podcasting in this case, and you know talk about this issue, but we can't address it directly. Like so, that's that's where I'm a little uh, rankled by this. Let's say. Mm. Okay, fair point. No, yeah. you're absolutely right. But I mean, it sounds like it. There is some like fascinating point in history. I'm sure. Eventually, the Clinton podcast will get into Ken Starr and what a wonderful, reputable character he is. <laughs> I mean, and also it, it it paints Linda Tripp in a more kind of like uh, 
complex light because again she mm. she was a woman who kind of like fairly had some points to make about clinton and i think it's also interesting with the clinton one it's like looking back it's like yeah he was kind of sexually harassing people and he could have possibly sexually assaulted people because again like at the time it was like oh, that's just bill being bill you know it's like old kind mm. of like boys club mentality that now we have thanks to the me too movement hashtag me too like we have more context for and kind of a better understanding of it's not just boys being boys it's like you might be actively a predator <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm glad, yeah, we can kind of address it and maybe enlighten some people on history. I just wish there was more like a a direct political action toward it. I mean, Mm. yeah, it's nice to kind of like, we're informed and we can post about this and, you know, feel good in expressing, but not actually like do anything. I Um, guess that's what what annoys me a little bit. Okay. I uh, mean, I think maybe I'll give it a try and actually come around on it. I'm I'm just judging from far. This is just this is just how I feel about uh, DC media in general. So, Mm. I mean, but again, it's also it's a nice primer to what we can look forward to for the next few months. Um, Mm. And that's the other kind of thing is like a lot of fired up lefties let's call them are kind of like why is it taking so long like we clearly know that this man is has a history of improprieties why is it taking so long for robert Mueller to do things it's like again the title of the podcast is slow burn it puts into context how long these proceedings take and like again the whole monica Lewinsky thing started out as an investigation over a scandal of real estate in 1991 and then the whole monica Lewinsky thing didn't Mm -hmm. come to light until the late 90s so it's just kind of interesting how long these things kind of just date and can take it's interesting how long real hardcore investigation and journalism actually takes. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder if that's the ultimate lesson we can take from this. Yeah. yeah. Good for you, Slate. Uh, Scott <laughs> to them. Oh, you just hate Slate, which I, I, I can't blame you. <laughs> You're pretentious as hell. <laughs> that's the other thing. If you have a, if you have a, just a gross distaste for, you know, premium subscriptions and commercials about here's what you get if you pay five dollars a month, then this isn't the podcast for no, you. This is, yeah. Because it exists to really just push their, you know, premium plan. You know, you'll get a bonus episode every month. Bullshit. Bullshit. (laughs) Do it for free. Like we do. Exactly. Every week. Yes. We are here. Do you hear any ads here? No. Well, you you are. (laughs) For Dr. Gonzo's psychic service, okay? (laughs) He will teach you. (laughs) All right. Listen, I've worked with Dr. Gonzo. He is a wonderful instructor, okay? He will teach you. All the powers through hypnosis. I mean, this this was developed back with by the Rajnishi um, back in <laughs> India. This really works, okay? And we, again, really important hypnos- hypnotic powers, okay? Your son or daughter's teacher, you will you will teach them how to really appreciate your son or daughter, and they will mm-hmm. you will get good grades. Um, the boss <laughs> that has <laughs> passed you over for the promotion, they will really teach. You can convince them through the power of healing and hypnosis <laughs> that you deserve that raise. And so his please. skincare regimen is great. Dermatologists hate him. He Absolutely. is the they, They're giving away all their secrets. <laughs> yes. And don't forget the supplements. All oh, the supplements, people. <laughs> so many right, supplements. They will give you the brain energy you need to really tackle all of life's challenges. <laughs> they say we only use 10% of our brains. Oh, was that falsified? Well, no. This is 110% of your brain, fellas. Yeah, Absolutely. Come on. Yes. So please, like our Facebook page. <laughs> yes, follow us on Twitter. Yes, go to twitter.com slash snobs, and you will experience a wonderful world of nootropic <laughs> supplements. <laughs> and you will have so much brain energy, so much mindset powers. <laughs> so strong. Big leak, I'm telling yeah. you. Yeah, so much, folks. We're bringing it back, all right? <laughs> we're talking, you may be a low testosterone uh, individual right now. Mm. We will build you up. I mean, you talk about testosterone. When you think of testosterone, you think of us, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, ahead. have they not heard us this whole podcast? <laughs> I've been wearing an eye patch the whole time. Because <laughs> I'm such a badass. <laughs> I thought there you you were affecting a, a particular uh, radio host that just got kicked off of YouTube and Facebook and well, <laughs> oh, it's a real testosterone, okay? <laughs> I will fight the energy of just... blood power. <laughs> They're putting babies on Mars. They're enslaving babies on Mars, and I'm frankly sick of it. So please subscribe to our various <laughs> channels and look forward to content like that. Exactly. We're on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, uh, yes. Player FM. We're on every podcast platform. Give so us five pl- stars, and you'll help other people reach us, and it'll be great. It'll be yep. fantastic. And they'll also have mindset and brain powers. It'll so be it'll be great. It'll also be great, the movie we're watching next week. Yes. Which is, off the top mm-hmm. of my head... Oh, see, I didn't take my supplements, so I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next week, we'll be revisiting our first Robert Altman film. We'll be watching the 1992 film, The Player. Yeah. Which I'm not sure is the most indicative of Robert Altman's style, but, you know, he's an exceptionally talented filmmaker. Well, uh, does it have people just kind of, like, talking over each other? And just kind of like a small well, I don't know. I mean, well, conversational I mean, pitter-patter. That way, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, you know, it's just people talking. Just yeah. people talking. I mean, well, no, I mean, this movie doesn't have it, but what? I, it this movie doesn't have it. I mean, so it's you're telling it's me it doesn't not, have it? Yeah, no, it doesn't. I mean, so we don't we don't know. I mean, is this indicative of Robert Altman's style? I, I just don't know. I just can't. And poignant pause and fade to black. <laughs> Boom. And we did it again. <laughs> Great pair. I did it. If, if look forward to more brilliant parodies like that next week. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring. One pill makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you. She's 10 feet.